This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, The Story Collider, Radio Dispatch, The Young Turks, The Black Agenda Report, The Tom Hartman Program, and Button Poetry. And a note that some white listeners may find this episode to be offensive in spite of it not being the least bit offensive. By any rational metric in this country, race is a huge determinant factor of so much of our lives. Uh, we know that racial bias persists in prison sentencing and kids getting suspended and kids facing school detentions. Uh, we know racial bias exists in every aspect of American life. And not only does it exist, it is really part of our definitional legacy. And this is also, you know, Jonathan Chait wrote this piece kind of contrasting and saying, look, well, you know, there is some problem with sort of this assertion that Republican and conservative politics is systemically racially biased. And look, if you make a very narrow claim, like it's wrong to say every single person who's a Republican is racist, we can accept that. Of course, that's true. But what that argument is evading is really the truly systemic context in which racial politics still defines who we are and drives a certain segment of America's voting population. And, you know, the way that shows up is in Eric Holder being treated with utter disrespect by Louis Gohmert. The way that shows up in, in birtherism and all this other garbage. And it also shows up with Britt Hume, who was on Fox uh, Sunday, I believe, with Chris Wallace, talking about President Obama and Eric Holder's uh, speeches at the uh, National Action Conference, which took place in New York this past week, and really getting to the heart of his views <laughs> of how being black have affected Eric Holder and Barack Obama's careers. Let, let's, let's take a listen to this. Strikes me as kind of crybaby stuff from from Holder. My my sense about this is that that both Eric Holder and Barack Obama have benefited politically enormously from the fact that they are African American and the first to hold the jobs that they hold. And this, I, I don't know if he specifically meant race or not. I suspect perhaps he did. But to those two men, race has been both a shield and a sword that they have used effectively uh, to defend themselves and to attack others. Okay, so let's be clear about this. So President Obama, who and, – and David Sirota made this point actually in uh, Back to Our Future. President Obama's entire brand and campaign in some respects was modeled after the 1980s uh, 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 Jordan commercials for Nike, which in a certain sense was aspirational, post-racial. President Obama has so studiously avoided uh, identifying – strongly with any particular issue and segment of the African-American community and projecting himself as a unitary, somewhat post-racial, post-ideological leader. And in fact, the only times that he has ever even stepped into a basic acknowledgement of racial realities, like if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, or obviously the cop that arrested the professor in his home in Cambridge was probably not acting intelligently. He has gotten harassed and demonized by the entire American right wing. We see people drawing, you know, everything is slavery this and dictatorship that, all from the same people whose political ancestors, at least, if we're being generous, were the ones who would justify states' rights and Jim Crow. Uh, Eric Holder is systemically disrespected and has conspiracy theories thrown at him every day. And incidentally, that's an evasion from calling both Eric and uh, both Holder and Obama out on real things that they have done, like not holding Wall Street criminally accountable. But I think that this Hume clip is important because, you know, if we're just taking this at face value and we're going to play the cheat role uh, and say, look, I don't know if Hume is personally a racist guy, what his actual racial politics are. But this is someone who, in spite of all empirical cultural evidence in his face, can sit in American in a studio in the 21st century and look at a camera and say Obama and Holder's race have been a net positive for their political careers is it's very clarifying 
Because we can get more deeper into it. We can say like, yeah, sure, I'll take what he says at face value and I won't impugn his motives. And what he says at face value is structurally insane. And how do these beliefs persist? We need to get on those questions. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's truly unbelievable. So easy to be black in America today. I mean, like, that's the point. And it's to say, like, it's just okay, so incredibly yeah, easy. It's so extraordinarily easy. I mean, and even the points when it's like, if there ever was a point where Obama's narrative of race was politically advantageous, that has already happened after he overcame so many structural barriers that were a result of his race that they more than infinitely cancel out. I mean, Eric Holder has talked about being, you know, working as a DA and getting racially, you know, pulled over because he's driving a nice car as a black man. I mean, okay, so maybe in some hiring process at a very elite level, it was like, oh, Eric Holder is African-American and on top of all of his his many qualifications and everything. Okay, good. we Great. But the structure of his life and his ascent in politics has been aided by being African-American. I mean, and, and again, take that at face value. They actually believe that. That in some ways is more disturbing than if you were just saying some nonsense to your audience. I mean, it's such a basic disconnect from reality. It's amazing. And that's, I mean, if you want to say, if you want to be like Jonathan Chait, not, you know, okay, all right, fine, not everybody's racist. I won't paint with a broad brush. Well, they're certainly fucking delusional and don't know basic history or sociology. Bill O'Reilly was talking about white privilege, and uh, he claimed that there's this there's this new freshman orientation session at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, uh, and he falsely claimed that it's a required course on white privilege, in spite of the fact that it doesn't focus exclusively on race. That didn't matter. Bill O'Reilly still wanted to attack the concept of white privilege, and he took the opportunity to say he has never benefited from white pl- privilege. He doesn't have it. Take a look at this clip from his program. Is in play. You believe that there is a white privilege component to America? There has always yes. Okay. All right. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. Okay. Now I'm I'm a really white guy. Mm-hmm. When I was in Hawaii last week, I couldn't go in the sun. If I was in the sun for three minutes, my ears would fall off. All right. Now I'm from Levittown, as you might know, out on Long Island, and my parents yes, didn't have me. a lot of money. All right. Do I have white privilege? Am I privileged in any way under this banner? Yes, because, because none of the things that you none of the things that you've indicated speak to the issue of white privilege. White privilege isn't whether your skin pigmentation is strong or weak. It isn't uh, how much money you have in the bank. It is you, you are the beneficiary of of years of uh, whites whites having an advantage in this country based I, I, but on I don't I don't under, I didn't experience that when I worked in Carvel painted no, 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 houses no, no, cut no, lawns. But others have experienced it. Others experienced it. White privilege is not about attacking white people. If you talk about white privilege, you're often accused by the American right of being anti-white, which is ridiculous, right? White privilege is the concept that uh, uh, by by sheer virtue of being white there are certain situations through which your race will simply not be evaluated. Let me give you an example. I was in a, I was in a deli the other day, and a white guy was very, very upset that someone at the front of the line was complaining about the price of something that they had purchased. The guy started getting very loud, yelling that he has to go, can you hurry up, blah, 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 blah. If you're in the same Brooklyn deli and a black guy gets agitated with someone at the front of the line and starts yelling at people, immediately his agitation is viewed through the lens of race. It doesn't mean that the white guy was or wasn't yelling because of his white race. It's an example of the subtlety of white privilege, Lewis. And this is something that many people on the right will laugh off, They'll say, we on the left are just too sensitive. 
but it's the subtlety of it that is actually what matters. That's right. It seems clear to me after listening to this clip that Bill O'Reilly doesn't really even understand what white privilege means. Of course. And, you know, I think it's as simple as him asking himself, would he be in the same position right now? Uh, and could he have got achieved this position just as easily if he were black? Let's assume family? he could have, right? Let's assume he asked that question and he could have. If you had Bill O'Reilly, loud bully on the, on the, on TV and on the radio, bullying guests, imposing physically, right? Bill O'Reilly has large stature and talking down to them. If Bill O'Reilly had that exact same demeanor as a black man, the fact that he was black would be part of the discussion around why he is so aggressive and loud with guests. But because Bill O'Reilly's white, his race becomes invisible when discussing why his on-air demeanor is the way it is. That's an example. school as I was getting ready to go to college I knew I was ambitious and I went to a college prep school and I can't remember who said it exactly but I remember being told be ready to do twice as much work work twice as hard to get half the credit if you're a fan of scandal you may have remembered Papa Pope telling Olivia that when she was in the midst of a pity party and the truth is for women who look like Olivia Pope and me that is truth. It's real hard truth, especially if you're ambitious, and it's very true and in my game in science. And I learned the hard way as an undergraduate student. When we were pairing off for labs, I was at a predominantly white institution, so that it was only about 3% of the student body that was African American. And it was a science and engineering school, so everybody there for the most part was nerdy. and there to take care of business but it was like the kid who didn't want to get picked at the at the football game or on the team that's how it was with me at lab or projects and it became clear to me that my classmates and some of my TAs and even some of my professors had amazingly low expectations of me and other students who look like me had a biochem professor who outright refused to answer questions he would see my hand up in the air and when he would answer, he would always be smug as hell and accuse me of not reading. Even though I was asking a question because I needed clarification. And so it was that type of stuff that I dealt with. It was, or my favorite, and by favorite I mean it's not my favorite at all, <laughs> um, passing out tests. And everyone would look over like, what you get, what you get? If I made lower than my classmates, it was this, you know, confirmation nod. But if I did better... You talking about guys, because it was mostly guys, white guys and some Asian guys, who would lose their shit? <laughs> How'd you do better than me? How'd that happen? And it became apparent to me that this was a world that expected me in a certain place, and that place was below them. I went on to graduate school, and little by little, you still experience some of that. It's a little bit less. But you still get the surprise, like, wow, you passed your qualification exams. Really? You, you accepted me in this Ph.D. program and you didn't think I could pass my quals? Why are you so surprised? Smug ass. <laughs> but you, you learn to deal with it, sadly. You learn to start brushing it off. The microaggressions become so common that you don't, you don't take it up. You don't call people on it. Because one of the other things you learn the hard way is that calling people out isn't as simple as a not cool. It always becomes a big deal, a blowout. And I learned that lesson my senior year of college when my souls professor walked in and just started naming all the historically black colleges in the state and a couple of the other metropolitan universities which had a noticeably very large African-American population and then he looked me in the face 
the only black face in the lecture hall, the only black person enrolled in the School of Agriculture at that time and to my knowledge since, and starkly says, you have to do real work here. What the hell? I didn't know what he was talking about, first of all. And so after class, I called him on it. I told him that his remarks were out of line. And his response was a disaster. He ended up chasing me across campus, screaming at me, insisting he was not a racist because he had a black roommate in college. <laughs> and that turned out all bad. So you learn to just let things go. You don't call people on everything. It becomes second nature. And it's because you have things to do. I got science to do. I don't have time to be sidetracked. I'm already struggling to keep up in a race that, I, and that I'm struggling. You know, I don't, I don't have time for these sidetracks. I'm already just trying to keep up. And so in addition to doing science, I also share my experiences online. I'm a blogger. I write a blog called The Urban Scientist, where I use my experiences as a woman, as a kid from the South, from the inner city, and I use pop culture and hip-hop references to deconstruct science concepts. And I also talk about the highs and lows that I've experienced in sciences, and, and I talk about it. I, I try to demystify the entire experience. So that makes me very visible. And visibility can be a good thing. But it's always problematic for a genius scientist. And even more so when, you, when you're a woman or a person of color or someone like me who lives at the intersection of those things. Because remember that rule, you have to work twice as hard to get half the credit? Well, now you've made yourself more visible, and so now you're going to be scrutinized even more. So that's life. And so on... I think it was in late September of October, early October this year, I get an email from a guy who I only know by the name of OFEC from a website I had never heard of, biologyonline.org, asking me if I would love to blog for them. We have over 10 million viewers a month. I responded, well, tell me more about it. What are you expecting? How often? Do you just want someone to write once a month? You know, or all the time and how much do you pay? He responds, oh, you'll have this opportunity to write for so many people. We have so, many, so much exposure, but we do not pay. Even Dr. blah, 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 who is the head of his blah, 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 blah field, doesn't even ask for money. All this exposure, and we know that about that exposure, right? And well, we would want you to write every month, you know, for a year. I responded, you know, thank you very much for responding, but no thank you. I thought that was it. So early in the morning, Friday, October 11th, I'm still wiping the sleep out of my eyes. I see I have a response from him. I'm like, what? what? What more was there to say after that? He's like, because we don't pay for blog entries? Are you an urban scientist or an urban whore? shocked. I sit up in bed. I wipe my eyes again because I'm convinced I did not read that right. And I look at it again and I read it again. And I quickly pound out a response in all caps. Did you just call me a whore? And I shoot it out. Nothing. I kind of ranted a little bit on Twitter that day and people were like, what the? Who? Tell me. Who? What? <laughs> I had other things to do that day and I calmed down. And I thought about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to frame it. And I made a video response. And then I blogged a little bit about it. And I put it up on my website. People were talking about it. It was, you know, getting a lot of traffic on Twitter. And about an hour later, it was taken down. People were telling me they couldn't open it up. I thought it was technical. Within a few minutes of that hour that it had been taken down, I got some, a note on the back channel saying it had been made private. No explanation. Nobody explained anything to me. I thought it must have been technical. But as the night wore on, I began to get worried. I started racking my brain, like, what did I say? And I did the thing that I've gotten used to doing. I started scrutinizing myself because it's easier to come ready. If I'm ready, then I don't have to deal with the scrutiny of other people. So 
to my knowledge, I didn't say anything, you know, that would get us in legal trouble. I didn't do any name calling. I called no one any names, you know, nothing like that. And I even made a point to make it about not me. I made a point to be calm and quiet and emotionless as much as possible and to even not even focus on my experiences. I just used my experience as a springboard because I learned early on that nobody really listens to you when you're a woman and when you're the minority in the department, that when you have an issue, when I have an issue, I've been treated as if that's your problem. You get dismissed. And so you, I learned very early that if I need to be heard, I have to make sure that the person I'm trying to get to listen to me can see themselves in the issue. And so the next morning, I finally get a call from the editor-in-chief of Scientific American, Mariette de Christine, and she explains to me, and her remarks to me were the same that she made to, to the outlets that she interviewed with and that she tweeted about. That blog post verged on the personal and Scientific American is a publication for sharing science. That was not science. That is why we took it down. And when we hang up from each other, I'm in tears. Because once again, I feel like I'm being treated poorly. That I'm not being heard. I'm being told that my issues don't matter to science, to science communication, to higher ed. I'm being told to shut up. Keep it to yourself yet again. All these years later, and it's frustrating. It's it's no other way to put it. It's I, I I was I was upset. My feelings were really really hurt, and I didn't I didn't understand what was going on because you know I just needed to be listened to, and I didn't realize it immediately. But the truth is, people were listening. My blog post, even though it was taken down, had been mirrored or cross-posted at several other sites. I'm still not sure how many people graciously put it up and they spread the world. It got tweeted. It made the news. It made it on BuzzFeed. It made it on Al Jazeera America and ABC News. I trended on Twitter. And when Monday, Monday, Monday morning rolled around, I panicked because I was like, oh, I don't think I can keep my mom and dad from finding out now. I was worried about that. Of all those things, that was what I was worried about, my parents finding out and getting upset. Um, but we did get it resolved. It did go back up, and the editor who made the insult was fired, I'm told. Um, and I got an apology from the company, from the head of the company that owns the website. But I still, I still catch myself doing what I've always done, what so many folks like me who who've gotten used to being the only one who've gotten used to being quiet we guard ourselves we watch ourselves and you still occasionally get remarks I mean even on my blog post now that it's up someone was great enough to remind me how I was ruining my career potentially for speaking up and defending myself and I thought to myself you know what that's bullshit it's bullshit, and I'm tired of it. I, I'm, if that is what I must accept to be successful in this field, then I've lost my appetite for it. I'm, I'm tired of that bullshit. I don't believe that I have to accept mistreatment in order to just get a chance to sit at the table, particularly when we already know within these fields that they have diversity and retention issues. And if that is what we truly say we care about, and we got new people coming to the table, I think we are beyond time for a menu change. Why don't you try to give up preaching Babel and bigotry? Why don't you try to give up your suspicion and fear? So 
something I've said on the show before whenever I talk about the school to prison pipeline is that people will respond to what I've written usually in the comment section. Uh, so <laughs> That delightful section. Yeah. Uh, but people will say, first of all, you're naive or you're a bedwetter, liberal, something. Um, and then they'll say, well, listen, I, we understand that like poverty is bad, but the reason that black kids are misbehaving more and getting sent to prison more and, you know, being handcuffed at school more is because of basically a depraved culture, right? To, uh-huh. to, we've been both been reading a lot of Ta-Nehisi Coates lately. You know, this idea like that, you know, this is a class issue because you know, families are struggling or this is a culture issue or this is because of poverty. And it's it's this like way of trying to pathologize again, to go back to, to language that Tanahasi has been using lately, um, pathologize to explain why black and brown kids are getting arrested and sent to prison from school. <laughs> well, in this, this new, uh, or relatively recent post that he has called other people's pathologies, uh, lays out the, the problem with equating culture of poverty and black culture. Yes, right. And right. and using those two interchangeably right. is obviously like is just is just wrong. Right. He says at one point there are there are, you know, millions of Americans who who you know, who have grown up poor. Those same Americans have not necessarily grown up black. <laughs> like right. to equate these two things is you know, they have not. You, you can you can come from poverty without also coming from being oppressed by white supremacy. But that it's this, it, and it's what's so sinister about this explanation for like racial disparities in education or in in punishment or in prison rates or whatever is that it kind of presents itself as very like liberal, right? To be like, no, like we're sympathetic. Uh, we're not saying it's like because black people are like inherently bad. It's because of culture and class and poverty. And it's just wrong. That's not why black kids are being sent to prison. They're being sent to prison because because they're being sent to prison for the same behavior that white kids are doing. It's just that white kids aren't being sent to prison. Right, and, and that was like specifically something that you talked about in, in that piece of yours. Yeah, and, and and with this new data about preschoolers, I mean, it seems even it seems like. Sure, you're gonna say, oh, well, high schoolers, you know, it's, it's easy to be like, we're all terrified of high schoolers. I can like mystify their behavior and blame their culture and whatever and not see that I'm being racist by doing so. But like, we're talking about four year olds and you're gonna be like, well, this four year old comes from a culture <laughs> that has made him depraved. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's a baby. It's a baby who's learning how to talk and walk and move and do things and behave again, like, when you go to preschool, you've never been in the school setting before. It's where you learn how to behave. And so, but that it's a really important distinction to make that it's not that black kids, black and brown kids are misbehaving more and thus being sent to prison and this is a problem. The problem is that they are behaving the same and being sent to prison, whereas white kids behaving the same are not being sent to prison as much. Certainly there are white kids who uh, suffer from these harsh zero-tolerance policies and, and harsh punishment policies, too. But if we're talking about racial disparities in punishment, those racial disparities are not explained by behavior disparities. They are explained by racism. It seems like it's not the most difficult concept I mean, to, it's, to right. grasp. But, and, and, yet, and yet, so many people refuse actively or passively refuse to get it. Well, right, and it, it's such a, like, flailing, desperate defense of white supremacy, I think, to, 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 I mean, because it really, it's not, it's not a matter of, like, opinion. It's like, the, the, the data is same shit, different treatment. It's amazing that people will hear that, that and pathologize it to, well, this is, or assign a pathology to it, even though that's not what's being said. And so what, what, what brought this up is that there was an editorial in the New York Times about this, this very problem of preschoolers being, because, you know, for good reason, I think people have really latched on to this information about preschoolers being disproportionately targeted by race, because that's kind of especially like, what? So. It seems like it might be a sort of new version of the stop and frisk numbers that, that like really captured the public imagination. Yeah, where people are like, really like, what? 
because they're babies and they're less like mysterious than, than teenagers are. But so this, this editorial in the New York Times was about this very thing, this, this federal data showing that black children are targeted more than white children. And apparently they write, some readers argued that the disparity might be explained by class rather than race or by the fact that minority children committed more serious suspension worthy offenses. And that's just not what that's just not what happened. <laughs> the, and the data says that's not what happened. The, and, the, and the Times acknowledges that. Yeah, yeah. And the data yeah. is like, actually, that's not what happened, weirdos. Like, look <laughs> at the, if that, before you go and make that assumption, why don't you like double check what the information is? And the information is harsher punishments for students of color than not, they say, youth minority and non-minority students, even when the behaviors being punished are identical. So there was enough reader response that the New York Times had to be like, whoa, you guys are not, you guys need to, to take a, a breath and read again. Right, yes, which is which is what I think is so interesting. Yeah. That, that we're not talking about, like, two different studies here. Like, we're talking about the same stuff, <laughs> right? The this, this same, like, sweeping federal investigation. Um, and, yeah, there was enough writing about four-year-olds being disproportionately punished by race created such a response from New York Times readers saying that it must be because those four-year-olds are doing more serious offenses or because of because of poverty, not because of racism, that the New York Times had to write again and be like, <laughs> no, 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 just to be clear, same shit, but identical behaviors. That's so different, wild. Different treatment. And it's just amazing that we're, that New York Times readers, and, you know, we could maybe say from that, relatively educated, relatively liberal readers and responders to the news. I mean, maybe that's, maybe I'm being generous and making assumptions, but you know. It feels about right. This is a paper of record, very well read, popular, whatever. It's not like, like a, a sub comment on 4chan or something. Right, right, right. And it's not the blaze. I don't even know if 4chan know. has comments, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, right. This is like people who, who you know, read the New York Times and, and heard that black preschoolers were being treated differently than white schoolers and responded enough so much that the New York Times had to issue another, like, follow-up, responded saying, well, it can't be racism. It must be the four-year-olds. Right. And like, that's how powerful racism is to say we would rather blame the four year olds. We would rather blame their families. We would rather it's I feel like it's also like a real it's not race. It's class because poverty makes people behave badly. And they're like, no, that's not what's happening. (laughs) Well, and even I think a lot of people would would like to like, quote unquote, blame a history of. A discrimination or something. Right, as opposed to current discrimination. Right, right. And say that, like, that, well, this history of discrimination is what made that black four year old act up. Right, right, right. As opposed to saying a history of discrimination is what made the adults assign a different punishment based right. on discriminatory policies that they've internalized. Right, right. And this is also like, you know, I would never say anything on the show to disparage teachers in any way. This is not saying like, oh, look at teachers are racist. <laughs> or this this is this is the white supremacy seeping into every aspect of our institutions, right? That that's what this is. This isn't about blaming individual people. This isn't about blaming preschool teachers. This is about structural and institutional racism. And what's so what's important about us understanding that it happens at four is again, I I mean theoretically when I heard when I first saw that data, I was like, so this takes away any of that pathology shit where you can say, oh well these those teenagers are just they're coming from a depraved culture. Because you it, it sounds ridiculous to say that about a four year old. And yet that's still what people are saying. They'd rather blame uh, to go uh, to again go to Tanahasi's what what he's been brilliantly writing about this pathologizing of blackness the false equivalency between p- cultural poverty and black culture uh, they'd rather rely on that to justify this disproportionate disproportionate treatment of babies they'd rather they'd rather blame the babies they'd rather blame blackness <laughs> than blame white supremacy i wonder if the like <laughs> i can i can just see this sort of readers reading this and being like 
well, but the babies must have been acting up. You know, yeah. just like, just yeah. like <laughs> take out the, the feather quill pen. Like, Dear New York Times, have you ever considered... Maybe and just Some babies are just worse than other babies. <laughs> yeah, just like going on and on, uh, you know, like a comedy sketch where the internalized uh racist readers just refuse to get the message no matter how many times you like yeah. double underline it yeah identical i mean it is right there the behaviors being punished are identical and i'm not sure to what extent i haven't actually read the original piece to what extent it makes it clear that the behavior is identical but again it's the same data it's the same thing it's the same fundamental reality that because, again, because of institutional and structural white supremacy, that is taken out on the bodies of uh, children of color from the time they enter these institutions. Not because of anything but that. Not because they're sagging their pants. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> not, not because they're sagging their little baby pants over their little <laughs> baby pull-ups. Pants on the ground. Pants on the ground. Looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. With the gold in your mouth, hat turned sideways, pants hit the ground, pants. A woman by the name of Tanette Powell wrote a piece in the Washington Post about how her two sons collectively have been suspended eight times. Now keep in mind that her sons are three and four years old, Joa and JJ. Here's what she had to write about it. Joa had hit a staff member on the arm. After that incident, they deemed him a danger to the staff. Joa was suspended a total of five times. In 2014, my children have received eight suspensions. Now keep in mind that Joa is only three years old and JJ is four years old. They're literally in preschool and while what they did was wrong, they've already been suspended so many times and she sees this as a really big problem. Now she gets together with a lot of the parents that also take their children to that preschool and she noticed something really interesting. She noticed that the parents who have white kids don't really experience the same type of treatment when it comes to the suspensions. Black children represent 18% of preschool enrollment, but make up 48% of preschool children receiving more than one out-of-school suspension, and that's according to a study released by the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights in March. So let's stop right there, because that's a stunning fact, right? Now, a lot of times, uh, people who are more inclined toward believing it's black people's fault will take a look at crime figures and go, you see that? Well, they get arrested more, that's because they're more likely to be criminal, they're more likely to be violent, etc. Now, this is a great uh, example because it's three-year-olds. Nobody's more likely to do anything, right? And so it, it's not like three-year-old black kids... I mean, you'd have to be a real dyed-in-the-wool racist to think that three-year-old black kids are more violent than three-year-old white kids or Asian kids. They're all kids. They haven't even learned anything yet, right? They, you, we haven't been able to socialize them to eat their food right, let alone socializing them in a positive way or in a negative way in a, in a significant way. Anybody who's had a three-year-old knows how hard it is to control them, right? So it's, it's normal. It's normal. But what do, you, what do you have? You have black kids being punished in a massively disproportionate way because of stereotypes that's in the heads of the people who are punishing them. Right. It's not the kids, it's the assumptions about the kids from the adults. I think it's devastating. Yeah, and it's, it's more a subconscious thing than anything. I don't think that anyone is being like overtly racist in this case. Sure, the, there might be some isolated incidents, but you kind of have to step back and think about the stereotypes and the perceptions that you have about certain groups of people. And I think that Tunette Powell did a really good job in clarifying that in her piece, which you guys should check out in the Washington Post. But another thing that I would say is, you know, the ACLU has been on this topic for a number of years now and it's the issue of the school to prison pipeline 
I don't care what the race of the child is, right? When they're in preschool, when you're dealing with three-year-olds and four-year-olds, you shouldn't deal with it by just suspending them. They're children. They don't understand what they're doing. You're supposed to use that as a teachable moment. By handling it, by kicking them out of school for a few days, you're not really accomplishing much. And I get it. Teachers have a really difficult job because they're dealing with all these kids. They're underpaid. And so keeping control of all of them can be very, very difficult. But we have these knee-jerk reactions where we think it's better to either throw them out of school for a number of days or kick them out of the school entirely. And with the school-to-prison pipeline, now all of a sudden we're actually criminalizing uh, rambunctious behavior and putting them in juvenile detention centers. So now, if you think that it's that uh, subtle discrimination that we're not even aware of, or as Anna's point, I don't think it's malicious, uh, is a factor. Get a load of a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. They asked mostly white female undergrads to judge kids and uh, and their actions, and they had black kids, Latino kids, white kids. Okay, Uh, the black kids on average were judged to be older and less innocent than the white kids and the Latino kids. And they're just showing photos here, and they consider them to be more culpable for their actions, okay? And here's another stunner. On average, they thought the black kids were four and a half years older than they actually were. Because why? Because the older you are, the more culpable you are, right? The more like, oh, he did it on purpose. So it makes your discrimination it rationalizes your discrimination. Well, I mean, it's not a three-year-old, it's a seven-and-a-half-year-old. So he knew what he was doing. See, that? See, he's more violent, right? Or he's, he takes more physical action, etc. So, I mean, look, and then when people say, no, we, there's no racism in the country, it doesn't mean you, you can't get beyond it, right? And the person writing the piece is very successful. She got beyond it, even though she dealt with similar issues, she says, in preschool against her, right? But it creates this huge hole that you're in from preschool, yes. from when you're three. And what you do is you internalize it. She made another great point in the piece. She's like, I thought I was the bad guy. I internalize it. And I was like, what's wrong with me? And, it takes and that's something else you've got to conquer to get to to an even playing field. Yeah, it, it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy for some kids, right? And it takes a really long time for them to kind of get over that. If you are growing with adults around you constantly telling you that you're bad, you do start internalizing and you start believing it. And that was something that the writer had to overcome in order to become successful in her own life. Yeah, my son got suspended like six times in preschool. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're white. He <laughs> <laughs> well, must have been really bad. Well, I mean, look, because if a kid bites another kid and he's hitting adults and stuff, I mean, I've been thrown off a plane with a three and a half year old because. Because he was saying, the plane is going to crash. And he was screaming it like before takeoff. And they're like, get off the plane. He's three and a half. Doesn't matter. But maybe he they knows threw me off something. The plane. He looked out the window and saw a gremlin. Well, what he, what, later, what he said was the, the plane was going to hit the sun and melt. So right. yeah, he didn't know that much. Right. Close call. Have you have they ever had a three and a half year old? Of course he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's three and a half. So there's two issues here that Anna alluded to and Wes is building on here, right? One is the issue of discrimination, and I think that's really interesting. The other is the over criminalizing of kids, yes. right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's me. I don't know any three-year-olds who don't throw a temper tantrum at some point. Yeah. My three-year-old's super common. Every once in a while, he'll get mad because he's three. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, I don't do that. And boom, he hits you, right? <laughs> I'm not going to suspend him from my house. They, they, have to, right? they have to overreach and overreact. And then they learn based on how you treatment, how you treat them in response to that. Right. Right. And also, the, really fast, the only point I really want to make about this is that we talk about racism constantly on this program, and all too often the stories that, that we have, that the media talks about, that we respond to, are like old, like dyed in wool, as you would say, conservatives, sort of explicit racism and stuff like that. In the, the, the teachers, especially like preschool and elementary school teachers, and the young college females in the study that you cited, neither of those demographically are likely to be incredibly conservative groups. A lot of them probably libs who are just as susceptible to these sorts of implicit subconscious forms of racism that they don't know that they still harbor. So even libs watching this program should be on the lookout for ways that they judge other groups that they don't even know that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Everybody right. does it. Everyone. I do Absolutely. it. Everyone mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Try not to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no, no, I, with the obvious exception of me. But other, <laughs> other than, than that, you. Other, other than, than you, everyone else does. Everyone else. Your-
you're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. I guess we're both a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. But I guess it's true. Between me and you, I think everyone's a little bit racist. Sometimes. Doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes. Look around and you will find no one's really colorblind. Maybe it's a fact we all should face. Everyone makes judgments based on race. A settlement will soon be finalized in New York City that will award five no longer young black men $40 million for spending between seven and 13 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. Twenty-five years ago, the Central Park Five, Raymond Santana, Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, Kevin Richardson, and Carrie Wise, were almost universally described in the media in animalistic terms. They were a wolf pack that had gone wilding on a mad rampage of lust and brutality, raping a 28-year-old white jogger and beating her almost to death. The cops experts at psychological operations against black teenagers, coerced confessions from the 14, 15, and 16-year-olds, and they were convicted in 1990. Miraculously, in 2002, the real perpetrator, a total stranger to the young men, confessed to having committed the crime all by himself. Forensic science confirmed his guilt, and the convictions were vacated. Having lost that which could never be reclaimed, their youth, the Central Park Five sued the police and prosecutors for false arrest, malicious prosecution, and a racially motivated conspiracy to deprive them of their civil rights. But official New York was unrepentant. The billionaire mayor, Michael Bloomberg, insisted that the city had violated no one's rights. The five black and Hispanic men should just go on about their lives and be grateful that they were no longer officially branded as brutal rapists. The police had acted in good faith. Only a morally depraved, irredeemable racist would use the term good faith to describe the treatment accorded to the Central Park Five. In a sane, non-racist society, the fact that five innocent children had been made to confess to a horrible crime that they did not commit would be viewed as a prima facie case of police misconduct. The onus would be on law enforcement to explain how such multiple miscarriages of justice could have happened in the absence of unlawful behavior by the police. But... In America, white supremacy means never having to say you're sorry in any meaningful way and never relinquishing the authority to behave in exactly the same manner the next time it suits your purposes. Thus, Mayor Bill de Blasio's decision to accept a $40 million settlement for the unspeakable crimes committed against the Central Park Five is more controversial in white society than Mayor Bloomberg's abject refusal to atone at all. It's not that $40 million will break the city's budget. New York paid out more than $700 million in settlements or awards from lawsuits for negligence, police abuse, and property damage in 2012, and expects to pay more than $800 million a year by 2016. But what they refuse to give up is the right to whip up racial hysteria at will, to treat black children like wolves and other species of wild animals, to scream that black bucks are running amok. The war against blacks is a permanent feature of social control in the United States. Although the Central Park Five were exonerated and will now be monetarily compensated, their ordeal bore ample fruit for the white supremacist state. In the wake of the fictitious wilding, Mayors Rudolph Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg were enabled to impose an even harsher racially selective police state on black and brown neighborhoods all across the city, ruining countless young lives. For Black Agenda Radio, 
I'm Glenn Ford. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey Rudy, what's on your mind? Hey, good day, Tom. How you doing? Good. Uh, this is why I love your show, man. I've been following you a while. It's my first time ever getting to speak to you, but um, you you know when I listen to you, you you really try to speak to the uh, to the humanity, to the spirit of of, of people, uh, of and how we should act amongst each other. And you know when I look at what the president is going through, uh. Being a black man, uh, pressure is something that a black man wears every day he wakes up. So I don't think the pressure bothers him. Um, I think he's going to, uh, if anything, I worry about how this is going to affect the future of, 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 of white America and, and how history is written and how this man was actually treated in, uh, in you know, later on in mm-hmm. the future, because it's going to speak to uh, 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 racism. Uh, a black man has a different perspective, and it's something that a white person would never, ever be able to experience. So, you know, when I when I listen to you, when you really try to connect to your listeners, I hear I, I hear that you. You, under, you have an understanding of what I'm trying to say and, and that I think that white people as a whole, if they don't try to tone, you know, talk to other white people that don't understand what, you're, what you are saying, it's putting the white, white people in a precarious situation because I think later on in life, there, there's going to have to be some explaining to do to the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, Rudy, I got to I got to tell you, I spent the first 50 years of my life uh largely, you know, in white neighborhoods working in white largely white companies and uh it wasn't until we moved to Washington DC. Well, really it wasn't until I started doing this show and interacting with callers of color. And and you know, I I mean, over the years I've had friends who are black, but we just never talk about race. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, I never, and I didn't understand personally, and here, and I think I'm a pretty insightful guy. I didn't understand that one of the most important and powerful pieces of white privilege is that white people don't have to wonder every time something happens, like, you know, they don't get a seat in the restaurant where they want to sit or they, they, you know, the, the taxi doesn't pick them up or, or, you know, anything, you know, didn't get that apartment, didn't get that job. Is that because of my race? White people never think yeah. about that, you know, and that's the, that's the, that's the biggest part of white privilege. I mean, it's like being able to go through life and never wonder. And, and it's like, I, I, I'm telling you, Rudy, 95% of white people have no idea what I'm talking about. I know, and, and, and that's why, I, you know, when I listen to you, I hear what you're saying because it's something that they're taking for granted right now, yeah. right now. Because you have to understand, in history right now, we are, we're, we're at a serious curve in history. If we're not paying attention as to how we treat each other, these things that are going on right now are going to come back to haunt us. Yeah. Well, I think the same way that, you know, Reagan making his first speech when he was running for president in Philadelphia, Mississippi, you know, shouting out to the white racists 
and this was this was you know collecting uh, the the you know, this was closing the circle from from LBJ signing the Civil Rights Act and basically giving away the Democratic Party in the South for a generation to quote LBJ. That was Reagan saying, "Okay, we're going to pick up the deal in full." And and what ha- what has happened since then is that the white racists and the white power movement and the the the, the groups over at at, at these right wing message boards like stormfront.org and whatnot and the groups that are tracked by the Southern Poverty Law Center they have become so empowered that they are a significant portion of the Tea Party they're a significant factor I mean they're a, they're a they're a factor that can turn an election in the Republican Party and in the Republican primaries and 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 I mean just look at what happened with Chris McDaniels uh, he's you got the entire Republican Party right now going ballistic because Thad Cochran dared to reach out to black Democrats to vote for him, and, or even and black you know, Republicans. And, and I, you it, know, go ahead. I'm, well, I'm, I mean, because I'm listening to what you're saying, and because see, the scariest part of what you're saying is when people start understanding the truth about American history. This is when things, this is when evolution really starts to take hold. This is when things start to happen overnight. Yeah. And I, I mean, please, Mr. Hartman, just keep doing what you're doing because, you know, I want my, my white brothers and sisters to understand that this, things will not be like this forever. I mean, yeah. I mean things change. Yeah. Well, in America is. I mean, well, America's going to be fine because we do have the ability to 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 to, to make the, the the changes that need to be changed, and I I have that hope. I I really believe that we will make that change. Now, I don't know if it'll come in my lifetime, or hopefully, to come in my kids' lifetime. Well, it's dark in the city. I've lost my pride. The lights in the streets hide the stars from my eyes. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know the change is gonna come. And it's too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there, just beyond the sky. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know. The change is gonna come. Hello, are you a person of color looking to get a loan, a job, or avoid police harassment? Please call the 1-800-WHITE-MAN-PRIVILEGE hotline now. Our roster of white men will come to your rescue in almost any situation. Avoid redlining. We can co-sign your mortgage, help you hail a cab downtown, and stop store managers from following you. At job interviews, we can give you that special seal of approval. Our white men will vouch for your intelligence, and you won't even have to remove your dreadlocks. All right, Jamal? And girls, are your ideas ignored at work? Our white men will present them for you. We guarantee your boss will listen. For black and Latino men, for black and Latino men, we recommend our escort service. With Chad by your side, you'll never have to worry about stop and frisk again. Please note, we cannot stop. Please know we cannot stop white people from touching your hair, calling nine-year-old black girls cunts, then calling you reverse racist for pointing it out. Please do not ask our white men about their privilege. They have no idea they have it. Call the white man privilege hotline now. Note, we only accept MasterCard. from Cleveland, just listening to a few episodes I was catching up on, and part of the one with the border issues really, really caught my attention. Um, I don't know why this is agitating me as much as it is, but the, the whole thing, treating them as refugees, treating them as like illegal immigrant opportunists, what angers me the most, and I don't think it was on the air, was um, Andrew Napolitano, former judge, went on news, and I think Media Matters called the PS on him talking about these kids coming across the border illegally and, you know, it either was knowingly or unknowingly Obama's fault. And then he's one of the first people to say these kids could have diseases, trying to 
rifle up all the Ebola scare, even though that's happening in an entirely different continent. What irritates me the most is to hear a conservative like himself, who was supposed to be a judge at one time in his life, you know, fair and unbiased. What bothers me, and Jay, I hate to say this, but his name is Napolitano. Does he forget where the racial slur what without papers came from? A lot of conservatives like to talk about, oh, you know, my family did it legally, my family did it legally. Jay, I'll tell you right now, I'm 10th generation American. Remember the SAR, Sons of the American Revolution. My family came over here, fought in the revolution, stole land from Indians, broke treaties. There isn't a person of European descent who can say that they have any more right to this land than people who are indigenous of this continent. Um, I find it hysterically ironic and disgusting that any, like I said, person of European descent can tell someone of South American descent, you don't belong here. Anyway, that's all I got. Thanks. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. Just got through listening to your media's portrayal of, of war. And I got to say that, to me, bashing mainstream media is kind of losing its luster because by now in America... If you're only getting your information from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times, you really have no excuse. You know, there's the, the Internet's been around for a long time. Most people have access to it. We have smartphones. You know, there, there are plenty of other truly independent media out there. Vice News, the Young Turks, just the two that I watch uh, quite a lot. So to my mind, you have no excuse for not getting a different perspective. Hell, if you don't have time, you can download this show and get a compilation of different perspectives. So, to me, the American people are basically entrenched, and they seek affirmation and not information. And so they have a, a, a belief, and they seek a news organization that legitimizes that, that makes it appear professional, that makes it appear that, that they're, not, they're not crazy after all. The American people have plenty of options to get away from the mainstream media. And the mainstream media should not have the power it has, but it has the power it has because that's what people want. I mean, just go on, an, on, a, on, a, on a political forum, and even if you don't believe it, just argue, I don't know, the Palestinian cause. Just argue it and see what you get called. You know, I'm on several political forums, and they think I'm a pinko commie liberal just because I don't care about abortion and I don't think all gays should be put to death. Apparently that makes me a liberal. I don't know. But th- these people aren't going to, they're not going to go watch, you know, independent media. They don't care. They have a certain belief, and by God, that's the only way it's going to be. That's the way the world works to them. I don't know how you get out of that. I really don't. Because all these, these, these alternatives have been available for years now. And yes, they are gaining traction, thank God. But I don't know if... if, if Fashion mainstream media, which which happens on the left and happens on the right, I'm not I'm not accusing you of that. It just seems like it's a waste of time because we've been doing it for years now. And what's the point? Why even Why even talk about? It? I don't even understand it anymore. But all they're all bad. Let them run themselves into the ground, which hopefully will happen eventually. Maybe it won't. I don't know. My belief is that again, the American people are entrenched. <laughs> and, that's all they care about is their their state their their state of view, their their mindset. I have several conservative friends. You know how many of them I've convinced to, to listen to your show? One. You know, they don't care. They they ask me all the time, why do I listen to a show called Best of the Left? Well, because I want a different perspective. That's why. You know, it, it to me it's not that complicated. It's not that hard to understand. It takes an hour out of my, you know, day every three days. Wow, big deal, you know. But um, that's just the way I view it, man. And uh, that was my thoughts on it. But I did think it was a great show, Jay. Uh, it was really good clips you pulled there, and really liked the uh, the handbook uh, segment of the show. I thought that was very interesting. How certain, you know, seemingly innocuous words could could totally change perspective. That that really was was mind opening to me, and I uh, really appreciate you uh, playing that. Have a good one. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped get the clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just a quick update today. I talked in the previous episode about launching a new, uh, well, a new old school marketing campaign, kicking it old school, asking for a positive, you know, five-star reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. I wanted a thousand new reviews in iTunes, which would bring us to 3,000 total and a total of 300 Stitcher reviews. So the update is that things have started off well, got something like 25 new reviews in iTunes in the first just day or so. So you keep up a pace like that, then yes, we will hit a thousand in the course of uh, about a month or so, which is my goal. So uh, keep those coming in. Just quick, uh, you know, tip that uh, iTunes reviews can be made either in the iTunes software or if you have an iPhone, then it can be done through the podcast store in the podcast app there. Uh, and Stitcher, unfortunately, you cannot leave reviews in the app as far as I am aware. But the good news is you don't have to use Stitcher in order to leave reviews. You don't have to have a Stitcher account or anything like that. So the, honestly, the best way to to find it is just Google Best of the Left Stitcher, and that'll find the show page on Stitcher. It'll be really easy. You'll see the button that says to write a review, and you can go do it without having an account or anything like that. And a pro tip for you, if you are so good as to be willing to write positive reviews in both of those directories, then uh, for goodness sake, just copy and paste. If you if you have anything to say, if you want to actually write a review, not just give it five stars, if you're writing a review, that yeah, copy and paste your text. Save yourself some work. But thanks to everyone who's already gotten involved and thanks to everyone who's going to get involved over the course of the next month. I'm really looking forward to seeing if we can get the attention of those directories and, and get some good exposure for the show. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and, as I've been saying, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained